Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hi, welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, and we're talking here on the Monday morning after the race at Richmond Raceway, and I'm joined right down the street by Kim Kuhn. Kim, last time I think we did this in person, you just came two miles up the street to join us here at the studio, but uh, I appreciate you doing this, even though you're so close, uh, via video because we missed the podcast last week. So it's good to be back on the uh, Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. So thanks for being here. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm right down the street, but either way, it's great to talk to you. And it was good to see you this weekend. And apparently I missed you at one point in Richmond. I used to live in Richmond, so I do a lot of running there. And you have discovered one of my favorite parts of the city that I like to run through as well, Carytown. And apparently I almost saw you Saturday morning. Yeah, I saw you. You didn't see me. I didn't. I, I somehow missed that you used to live in Richmond. I have a handful of friends that apparently used to live in Richmond that I was unaware until I started posting about things from Richmond this weekend. But in terms of city offerings, it's one of my favorite stops on the circuit. There's so many good gems there. But yeah, I gotten up early uh, to grab a coffee and a, a breakfast bite from a place called Sugar and Twine, which is kind of right in that Carytown area, and was in my car. And I saw you running. I was 99% sure it was you. But I saw that you had uh, pods in your ears and I was like, I don't want to honk because there was like a line of 12 people deep. I was like, I'm going to end up scaring all these people. I'll just <laughs> I'll find them at track and say hello. Well, I was glad you found me and did say hello. And uh, even though there was a line on Saturday morning, I'll give you a tip. I ran by on Sunday morning and at like 7.20, there was one person in line. So oh. apparently... Saturday morning, it's much busier than Sunday morning. So for your future trips to Richmond, which I completely agree, gem of a city, great place for NASCAR to visit. The racetrack has changed a lot. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but let's start with the winner of the race is Chris Busher, who wins for the second time in less than a year now. Uh, he won at Bristol Motor Speedway last September during the playoffs. And I want to start here, I guess, Kim, because I don't feel like I know a lot about Chris Busher, and I feel like that's somewhat on me. And I don't know if we in the media have done a good job of sort of exploring the Chris Busher story. I know that some of it is he wins the 2015 Xfinity championship. He won as a rookie in cup, but then he sort of mostly toiled in obscurity in NASCAR's premier series for six seasons before he had this semi breakout year last year with Roush Fenway Kislowski racing wins for the second time at Bristol. And like I said, wins again this year and is now in the playoffs. So He's made nearly 300 cup starts, but I feel like I barely know him. And again, this is my fault. So I'm coming to you. Like, what do you know about Chris Buescher? I, I would 
say I kind of fall in the same circle of you. I, I know some of his story, um, obviously from Texas, uh, salt of the earth person. Um, but I think, I think kind of this persona we get this kind of, I don't want to call it mysterious persona. We just don't know him as well as maybe other drivers. It is kind of to his liking and to his credit. Not that he's elusive necessarily when it comes to media and doing things. He is always extremely uh, compliant with interviews. He always is happy to talk. He's actually one of the drivers that I enjoy interviewing and talking to only because he is always very willing to. But he kind of is is a little bit, not shy, but he's just not one that's going to be flamboyant about, you know, what he thinks of this and eager to, to talk about that. You, you can get it from him, but you definitely have to put him in the position to talk, kind of dig for it. And then once you get talking to him, you know, he's a wealth of, of information and he's happy to chat. But you get, you get a, a very strong sense of humility and the best type of humility, I think, from Chris Buescher, maybe out of, out of anybody in the garage. Yeah, and I think you're right. He's extremely accommodating when you ask him for any Like Saturday during the driver bullpen at Richmond uh, after qualifying, I, mean, I got him by myself and he gave me like five minutes. And when you, when you ask him questions, I think he gives you, as you said, sometimes eloquent, long answers. I mean, he tries to give you what you're looking for, but he doesn't seem like he ever seeks out attention. And he's certainly not like his teammate slash car owner, Brad Kozlowski, where you know Brad's got some big picture views and... He likes to share them. It, I don't know. Maybe there's a yin and a yang there that that, that works, or maybe it's just that he's a great driver, uh, w- which is obvious g- given he's got two wins in the last year now in the Cup Series for Chris Buescher. But it just it seems like he's just sort of underrated, but yet appreciated by his peers. I know. I, I just I have a hard time kind of putting my finger on the what the Chris Buescher story is. Yeah, I like that underrated but appreciated. You get a, a real sense of like a blue collar guy. He's He's willing to do the work, um, nose to the grindstone type of personality. I, I get the sense that he he's very physical away from the track in terms of getting dirty and working on the land and that sort of thing. And so I think, again, he's a salt of the earth personality, doesn't seek out the attention, but happy to give you the time if you ask. And you had him because you were you were not working for NBC Sports this past weekend, but you were working for MRN Radio, and we were just talking. You you had him as part of your pit sections. What's he like to listen to during the course of a radio? And what was it like to hear him during the course of this win? I mean, could you tell because he started, I think, twenty sixth somewhere deep in the field. It was a it was a Herculean um, task by him, but he did have a great car too uh, to get to the front of the field, knowing how hard. It is to pass at Richmond. Obviously, strategy came into play, but he's pretty even keel on the radio. Over the course of my time covering the sport, you don't ever get, you know, the the hot temper, hot headedness from him. Um, That's not to say he doesn't have passion. He doesn't have, you know, drive. He doesn't get riled up, but he seems to maintain, compared to other drivers, a good sense of calm on the radio. Same with his crew chief. I mean, Scott Graves is is a very calm personality when it comes to the radio. Although once they took the checkered flag, it was very much like they were excited. You could tell on the radio. And I think the nature of the way that race ended helped showcase Chris's ability more so than it than if it had gone green to the end, um, which I think was awesome. Like when the when the uh, caution flag waved at the very end, I was kind of like, 
as much as you love to see a restart late in the race, I was really pulling for Chris. Uh, he was going to be a new winner on the season. You know, we've watched the tra trajectory of RFK. And so, you know, you try to be neutral, but I was kind of pulling for Chris. And so to see that caution come out, knowing how good Denny is, depending on how the, the pit stop was going to sort out on restarts, knowing how aggressive Denny has been recently and some of the other guys that were around, you know, that hadn't had wins yet this season. So it was going to be a big effort on that restart. So I think it almost makes the win more poignant. The fact that, you know, he had a dominant car and then he had to survive a late race restart, but yeah, kudos to them. That late race restart for Daniel Suarez, spin was the only so-called natural caution, three caution flags, two for stage breaks. And want to get to that with Richmond being such a strategy race, but you brought up RFK as an organization, Brad Keselowski led the most laps, had a pit stop that went awry uh, where he he locked the brakes coming in. So he ended up finishing outside the top five, but still a strong effort. And he was asked afterward, you know, what this means to the organization and, and kind of struggled, I think, a little bit to frame it. But I think it essentially means, I mean, they're almost guaranteed two playoff spots now because Chris Buescher is now locked in and Keselowski is so far up with four races to go. I don't think there's going to be enough new winners to like bump him out, even if he doesn't win in terms of points. So where do you think right now, Kim, that RFK ranks as an organization? I had some, I heard some over exuberant, I would characterize it as colleagues in the media center who were asking like, is RFK the best Ford team in cup? I'm not all in on that. Like, I feel like that's a little bit overboard. Like, I still think you got Penske, you got Stuart Haas. RFK is like in the mix and they've run well, but I don't know if I'm ready to like put them in like the final eight of the playoffs yet. No, not yet. I'd like to see more consistency over the course of more than just uh, a year and a half from kind of the changes that were made when Brad came in and where they're going with the team. Now, if we're having this conversation next season and, and they have a couple more wins under their belt and obviously there's, there's comers and goers. So that's still going to be relative to what the other Ford's teams are doing. Then maybe we have the conversation of there at the top of the, the totem pole for uh, the Ford teams. I do, I do think though, they are at a place where they're toe to toe if not, maybe have a toe over the line relative to SHR. And SHR still winless on the season, and they've got four drivers compared to two. Now, SHR also had a really strong showing this weekend um, at Richmond. We've seen them also have short track speed, which we've seen from all the Fords. That seems to be kind of where they are strong this season compared to other tracks. But, you know, I, I'm not going to put RFK at the top of the Ford list. I, I think still it's hard to argue against Penske and, and even – they aren't where they could be or where we expect them to be. But I would put RFK right along even with SHR at this point, in my opinion. Yeah, and just to put a cap on that, Kozlowski has now three top 10s in his last four races. But surprisingly, for Busher, he had only had one top 10 in the previous mm -hmm. five races. So I think you're right. That consistency is still something they're looking for. So they played the strategy right, obviously. And that is what Richmond has become. And we talked about this on our uh, NASCAR and NBC production meetings last week heading in this race that we were expecting long green flag runs because that's what this race has been the last few years. I know in your role as a pit reporter, you talked to a lot of crew chiefs in your prep for each race. What was their take? I mean, was everybody just kind of expecting that this was going to be a race where it was just going to be all about plotting out strategy if you're a team? Yeah, it was all the talk I had with crew chiefs was about tires. Um, and because it went green for so much of the race, 
they didn't have the opportunity to play even more tire strategy than we could could have seen if there had been more cautions. Every crew chief I talked to that morning said they wanted it. They wish they had at least two more sets of tires, which is funny because I think the teams that that made the most stops either were right on the line of using all their tires, maybe even had one more set, some of them. So just the nature of how the race played out with so much green flag racing. Yes, we did see strategy, but not as much as we would have seen if we had had a myriad of cautions and crew chiefs were having to decide, all right, do we put our qualifying scuffs on at this point? Do we save a set and stay out? So that was a lot of the talk in the morning is what that could look like. You know, if we had had a caution in the first stage, that first semi-lap stage, a lot of teams had talked about putting on their qualifying scuffs to save a set. All of that really not playing out because of how many green flag runs we had. Do crew chiefs like this race? Do you sense because they do have maybe more influence on it than I mean, it almost it feels like they're almost running it like a road course. You can clearly make a, a lot of uh, impact in terms of your strategy. Do, do you sense that they like this race because it it is sort of like that? Uh, I, I probably would say it's a mixed bag. And, you know, some crew chiefs, I think, flourish and love a, a challenge like this, um, especially if, if there would have been even more strategy options. Others are just kind of like, kind of like, oh, like we, we know, we, we kind of like know we're, we're in a position where we have to take four tires every time. We don't have as many sets as we want. Um, and maybe it's not their favorite. So I would say it was, it's probably split. Unfortunately, I feel like that reaction, the UG, probably true for some longtime fans of Richmond. Again, I used to live there. I used to work at the newspaper there. So I've probably covered more races there than any other track on the NASCAR circuit. And my first race there, I remember, was the fall of 1998. Actually, it was like late summer. September of 1998, Jeff Gordon and Jeff Burton battled side-by-side side for the last 15 laps for the lead. I mean, literally side-by-side side for the lead, like one of the greatest finishes I've ever seen. And I just thought, ah, all races at Richmond are supposed to be that yeah. way. So flash forward almost 25 years later, here we are, and we're talking about Richmond running like a road course, yeah. even though it's it's a short track. Do you have any sense? Because I can't wrap my head around like how it's changed. I know there was a repave. They don't seal the track the way they used to do 20 plus years ago when the Sawyer's on the track before it was sold to ISC and then NASCAR. Is it tire degradation? Do you have any sense for why it doesn't seem to race like a short track as much anymore? Yeah, I can't put my finger on it either. All the factors you listed. And then on top of that, the, the way the cars have changed. I don't know that the last actually... This iteration and the previous one have set themselves up at, at Richmond for great racing. But I do think despite that, despite the fact that we are we aren't necessarily seeing, you know, that side by side for 10 laps straight kind of racing that we would love to see at Richmond because of the surface, the fact that there is tire wear, tire fall off, it is still a very interesting race. And it makes it interesting if you are a little bit of a gearhead, especially to watch this race and watch it play out and, and see the different strategies. You know, we did see a couple of different strategies in terms of uh, how many stops teams took for tires. And so, you know, even though we don't have that side-by-side -side racing, at least we we still fall back on this. Well, there there is strategy you can play here, but I don't know what the solution is to, to getting it to be side-by-side. -side. And at this point with the next-gen car, you know, we've had complaints about, you know, needing better racing at with the short track package in general. So is it something that we look at the car? You know, I know there's, there's, they're testing right now. They're staying an extra two days to test. 
Obviously, we won't see those changes until 2024 for the short track. So is it a car thing? Is it a track thing? Is it a tire thing? Is it, you know, a weather thing? Is it a, we went back and forth at Richmond doing day races and night races. And you have different opinions on that too. Should we be racing in the day there? Should we be racing at night? I love day racing, but it was a hot one. So <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't have minded a night, a night race, uh, this past weekend only because the temperatures were so hot, but that's just me working it. I think, you know, from a hot, slick, hard to race track perspective, it was probably good. Yeah. I go back and forth too. I mean, like when I think about the halcyon days of like Richmond selling out a hundred thousand plus seats, legitimately having a crowd of a hundred thousand plus people twice a year, obviously that was Saturday night. So I, I feel like their brand is very much associated with Saturday night at that track. But at the same time, I think the daytime races have produced at times, better races that plays in the, the track being slicker. And But we talked about the impact of the strategy on crew chiefs. Obviously, it has an impact on drivers as well. And I know you had Martin Truex Jr. Uh, as one of your drivers. And he had this weird strategy thing going on where they leapfrogged by running longer than anybody else, I think, in a couple of stages and mixing up how they're going to do their stops. But it seemed like it was very confusing to poor Martin and he was asking for any sort of explanation. What was your take on everything you heard there? Yeah, I just don't, I don't know if they weren't giving him enough information, but if you had the opportunity to, to tune into Martin's radio, especially during that last stage and after they did their final green flag stop and after the field did their green flag stop. And at one point before that tire situation played out, he was 20 something if and got on the radio asking like, where am I? I don't know where I'm running. Like, what position are we in? What are we doing? And there were a couple times after that, too, after things were cycling through that he didn't really trust what the strategy was. And he got a little chirpy on the radio and and, and even said, like, I don't think this is going to work. Um, wanted more explanation. And maybe the team could have done a better job of, of setting him up for what their idea was. Um, he didn't think the tire strategy was going to work in their favor. Ultimately it did. At one point, James Small did come on the radio and said, you know, we don't have to stop again. The other teams have to stop. This was after they did that final green flag stop in theirs and the other teams were waiting to do their second stop. And so, and we've seen this before from Martin and James um, where they, they get a little quippy with each other, but I think that that's, that gives them an edge as a team. I don't know. I think it works in their favor, but they had that strategy. I think Michael McDowell did too, where, for stage two and then the final stage, instead of making it two stops within the stage, they split it down the middle and made one thinking, you know, A, they would have a little bit of an entire advantage to a point. Yes, they would have to be able to maintain on old tires. But then, even though we didn't see a ton of cautions, it would also leave them with more sets of tires than the other teams had. Now, that didn't exactly play out, but it did ultimately work in their favor, especially because the 19 car was not great. Martin was complaining all day long. It was absolutely sideways. Uh, didn't like the handling of it. So I, I think he maybe had pace, but he definitely didn't have the car he wanted in terms of drivability. And so that strategy worked in their favor to get them uh, a top 10 finish. And you're right. Not the first time that we've heard him and James Small get a little bit chippy with each other and, and Truex chirping when he's unhappy with things. But knowing that we're still waiting to hear on if he's going to drive beyond 2023. And it sounds like, you know, from what I heard this past weekend, that this really is something he's wrestling with like it's not a given even though he's had this resurgent season this year with three wins not a given yet that he's necessarily going to come back 
Do you think that plays into it at all? That like when he has a day like this and he's, you know, mulling if he wants to keep doing this and devoting so much of his life to it, like, is he thinking, ah, maybe I just want to walk away from this? <laughs> I think so. I mean, every driver will tell you when, when you're having good days and you're winning, it's fun. And when you're not, it is hard. And I, I don't know that we, that people give enough credit sometimes to the drivers, you know, they show up, they practice for 20 minutes, they do a race, but the actual work that goes in seven days a week into prepping for a race. And I do think Martin's probably spoke a little bit about that, that it's not just a show up and race kind of thing. It's like you're doing the homework, you're in competition meetings early in the week, you're watching, you know, video and notes and SMT data, looking at what other teams did, looking at what you guys did in the past. And so it's not just a weekend job. It is a seven days a week. You know, if you're not putting in that effort, you're not going to see the results kind of situation. And so um, I think that plays into his decision. And again, to your point, I do think like when you have bad days, it's kind of like, why would I keep doing this sort of thing? I mean, I guess a seven figure salary probably helped a little bit in terms of alleviating those feelings. But at the same time, I mean, he's been driving in cups since 2006 and he seems like a guy who sucked a lot away I, I suspect that he's probably good if he wanted to walk away tomorrow <laughs> yeah you, one, one would think but uh you also look at you know the the desire to be a multi-time champion and they're the current points leader and you know I think that compounds frustration you come in the points leader you want to leave you want to leave the points leader granted William Byron didn't have uh anything for anyone um yesterday but I think there is the desire to get that other championship. And, you know, if that were to happen, would he drop the mic? I don't know. That would be kind of a cool move, I think. And so I think you're looking at a couple of different things that funnel into, you know, his frustration is, you know, they weren't having a bad day. They want to maintain the points lead. And, you know, they are going, they are a legitimate championship contender. You mentioned there, Hendrick, certainly their struggles were very much a surprise. Larson, Byron, I mean, Chase had um, like a top 15 finish, but kind of a, a middling day. Bowman wasn't really a contender. Other competition elements that you take away from Richmond, I know Stuart Haas was fast, but they had mm -hmm. the pit mistakes by Amaral. And I know there were some other pit mistakes I mentioned, Kozlowski. What other uh, top line competition elements that you take away from Richmond? Yeah, lots of pit mistakes. And it wasn't just a singular team. It was across the board. We saw it from Bubba. They had a trouble on their right front. We saw Kreese have trouble. Granted, that was kind of, he got punted by William Byron, Brad Koslowski coming in hot, although he kind of salvaged his situation. Um, you know, after locking up the brakes, was able to get in his pit. He had one tire out, but it was the right rear. And that's the one tire you can have out of the box and it not be a penalty. You had Eric Almarola with a commitment line violation. There was another, I think Tyler Reddick also had a commitment line violation. And so to me, looking at all that, it makes me think, all right, well, who's our champion then? Because yes, there are a lot of green flag stops at Richmond, so there's more opportunities to make those mistakes. But this has been a trend, I would say, all season, if not definitely the last like six to 10 races is we're seeing all these mistakes. We're seeing them from very strong teams, even at the, the, the top of the leaderboard, you know, Truex and William Byron, you know, the guys that are within a shot of getting that regular season championship, they are even making mistakes. And so to me, it's like, all right, when is somebody going to step out and have maybe not a perfect race, but a very solid mistake free race. And not only that, a string of those type of races. And I don't think we've seen that from anybody. And I think that's what you need to be a champion. And so when does that start to happen? Because I haven't seen it. I mean, Kyle, Kyle Bush had a great finish. They were, if we're talking, you know, notes from Richmond and maybe surprises RCR has admittedly they will you know you talk to Randall Burnett uh crew chief for Kyle Bush and he 
will be very honest with you uh, about their short track program falling short. And they've known that and they've tried to throw stuff at it. They tried to throw stuff at it in New Hampshire that did not go their way. And I think we saw strong runs both from Austin and Kyle. Now, both of those drivers uh, typically do well at Richmond um, historically just as drivers. But uh, there was a lot of questions about what kind of package uh, or what would they would they would bring with this package. And I don't know if it was just circumstances or if they actually found something, but it was a significant improvement, in my opinion, compared to their other showings at short tracks this year. That had to be a huge morale booster after New Hampshire was fairly disaster of a weekend for the number eight team. So as I mentioned, Kim, you're coming back to NBC Sports at Michigan, which we love, but you were doing MRN at Richmond. You've got one more at Daytona where you'll be focused on on that side. What's it like for you switching between the two? Like, is it a different type of role when you're doing pit reporting TV versus radio? Do you have to, have to like recalibrate your brain in order to like call them differently? Or is it pretty much like the same sort of process? There's overlap, but then there's definitely things that are very different from radio to TV. And you do have to kind of like recalibrate and think about it. On the radio side, you do need to know the storylines, do have to be, you know, up to speed on your notes and, and do prep work. But the prep work isn't as in-depth as it is on the TV side for a couple of reasons. The first and foremost being like on the radio side, there's no visual for the fan. So you're literally describing and, and illustrating the picture for them and what's happening on the racetrack. And so that takes up a lot of your reports is describing what's happening. And it's not that TV's not in the moment, but TV leans on the picture to tell what's happening. And then, you know, the reporters are more storytelling versus radio, which is regardless of what position you are, whether it's a pit reporter, a turn person or a booth person, you're giving play-by-play -play is what you are. So so the prep work is definitely different. The roles are the same, but also different. And I don't know if that makes sense for somebody who hasn't done it, who doesn't do it. But as much as they are similar, they're also extremely different. And for TV, you have to, because the fan can rely on the picture, you have to make your reports so much quicker. Whereas as radio you have the time to kind of illustrate what's happening, take your time. You still want to convey the sense of this is a race and it's you're on the edge and it's fast paced, but delivery is also very different. Kind of having that longer runway to be able to talk about things on the radio side, does that make it easier for a race like this where you have these long green flag stretches, not as much action so much in terms of yellow flags, cautions? Like, is it easier, I guess, when you kind of have time to sort of draw it out a little bit more? Yeah, it, it definitely is easier. Uh, honestly, that's kind of where radio and TV are the most similar, in my opinion, is that is the nature of the race and how the race kind of unfolds. So like anytime you have longer green flag runs gives you the opportunity to bring in other voices. And that's the same for radio as it is in TV. And you'll, you'll hear that if you're listening to radio and you'll you'll see it and hear it when you're tuned into the TV broadcast is when it does get kind of strung out and there's green flag runs, that's where you do bring in, you know, all the voices of the broadcast, whether it's the Peacock pit box or the booth or the pit reporters, and really do a deep dive into more storytelling. What can we tell and update about these teams that we have the time to do versus like a super speedway where people are jockeying the entire time and the racing is so close. Both of those are, are TV and radio are very similar in that, you know, you're lucky finding a time to get a word in because the, the action is 
is so compelling and you don't want to break into the call of the race to give an update when that is that is the story is what's happening on track. Yeah. And I encourage people to check out Kim's last visit after Atlanta. She did a great job sort of explaining what that's like as a pit reporter, trying to like process all that information from all the spotters and like how you have to sort of separate wheat from the chafe and figure out like what you're actually telling people because it's so frenetic, so frantic. Another thing that you do obviously in your job as a pit reporter, both radio and TV is, is interviews. And I feel like the big story coming into Richmond certainly was Denny Hamlin versus Kyle Larson coming off the heels of Pocono. And you were a part of that um, because you did maybe the most memorable Kyle Larson interview in history, which is impressive given Kyle Larson's credentials, 2021 Cup Series champion, among other very uh, impressive racing accomplishments. So I want to ask you a little bit about process, Kim, here again, because I, I think there's a lot of interest in this. I think people would be interested in it because you got three questions with him and you did a great job hitting all the right follows and getting to give you a little bit more each time. So I'll start with when did you know you were going to be talking to him and did you have all those questions in mind? Because I know that I haven't done as much pit reporting as you, but I've done enough to sort of know that like sometimes everybody knows who's talking to the winner, but like in terms of the rest of the top five, you don't always know like who you're going to get. I know that we have reporters designated to certain teams or sections of pit road. So was he in your section? Did you know you were going to be talking to him? And when did you kind of like go through the process of, all right, here's what I got to ask him about after that incident with Hamlin? Yeah, so post-race is always frantic as much as you can try and plan it. And we knew Marty was doing the winner interview, and then it's kind of just a give and take of who has what. We typically, if you have that person on pit road and you're doing post-race interviews, like to to give you know the pit report of the people they have because they followed the stories all day. And honestly, because so much happened, I'm trying to remember if Larson was even in my section. I want to say yes, but don't quite remember. But regardless, we know like when there's big moments big dramatic moments throughout the race we kind of make note of that and know we want to talk to those people after and even if they don't finish in the top five so nascar does a good job of communicating with our producers you know who do we need to hold for you guys who do you want to talk to outside of the typical top five top ten and so we knew larson was a target i had gone to truex first because he was runner-up Got to work with him and then heard of my producer, we need to get Larson. So walked all the way down um, pit lane because he finished 20th or, or 21st. And I think one of the important things that happened with the Larson interview is it was done live. Um, and we don't always have the freedom to, to interview every driver live. You know, they have places to go. They want to get home too. And you're very lucky if you have a, a driver that you can get live versus taping it and then playing it minutes later. And so I... That's not to say we wouldn't have gotten the same interview from Larson, but I asked my producer if we could do it live. We did have to wait through our commercial break. I told Larson we are waiting to do this live. And I think that that in itself helped the interview versus if he knows it's taped because we have these jerk cams where they can see what's being broadcast. And I do think regardless of who you're interviewing, that makes a huge difference can make, I should say, a significant difference in the type of answer you get from a driver. So I think that was one thing that worked in our favor in terms of getting a great interview from Kyle. Um, I obviously knew I had to hit on the Denny stuff. Uh, so, you know, as I'm walking over there, I kind of think about what my first question is going to be. And, and you can have an idea of everything you want to ask, but you really have to be in the moment and, and be listening to what the driver says to then ask the follow-up questions. And uh, I do think I, I pushed it a little bit. It, it's rare you get three questions, but Larson seemed like he wanted to talk. 
I appreciate that the uh, kind words that you and others have given me. And I do think you have to ask the right questions and you have to read the driver. But I, I think we should give some credit to Larson because even if you are at your best as a reporter and you ask the perfect questions and you deliver them in a way that is great, you still can have drivers that don't want to talk and, and can, can shut you down regardless of if you're at your best. And so I, I do want to give a little bit of credit to Larson for being the most forthcoming. I think that we've ever seen him. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. Like I go back and forth. I this sort of chicken, the egg thing. Is it harder to be the interviewer or the interviewee? And you're right. Like sometimes you can ask the best question and not get the best answer and vice versa. I'll go back really quickly though, to what you were saying, live interviews versus taped. Is it that drivers just know when it's live, people are seeing it where as when they tape it, uh, maybe they won't use it. Maybe they won't use all of it. Is that sort of the difference where yeah, maybe yeah. Uh, I'd actually be curious to, to get a driver's specific perspective on it, but I do get a sense that when they know it's live, it tends to be a better interview. Now, there's always exceptions to the rule where you hear a great soundbite that, you know, was captured and, and played later. That's not to say that all taped interviews are bad and all live interviews are good. But in terms of capturing kind of like the heat of the moment, uh, I do think that you are always typically better off or, or the odds are way more in your favor during live interviews. And the other thing, and this can work in your favor against it, being the first person to talk to that driver. So nobody had gotten to Larson in terms of other media. And again, that, that in, in this instance, it worked in our favor at NBC, but in sometimes other instances, you know, after a driver's answered, you know, a couple of questions, maybe his, his thought process has changed or maybe it gets him more fired up. It can go both ways. But in this instance, I think it benefited us at NBC being the first ones to talk to him. And usually you get, one question and a follow-up as a pit reporter. And sometimes a producer might say, hey, go a bit longer, or ask about this. In this instance, like, were you offered that third question or did you just feel like I got to follow one more time because I feel like there's a little bit more to pull out of Larson. I'm just going to go for it. It was an interesting situation because you're right. Typically, we do have a producer saying, you know, dig for this, dig for that. But I, I, our producers did a great job um, and directors uh, of kind of sitting back and realizing Larson was willing to talk and giving me the runway to do what I thought was appropriate. So they actually weren't in my ear after I went green with Larson on the interview. And I, I think that was actually helpful in this situation. So I asked the first question. Yeah, we saw that aggressive racing between the 11 of Denny Hamlin and you. Assess what happened. Was there somebody in the right and somebody in the wrong? Um, I knew I had to ask a follow-up. You and Denny are friends off the racetrack. Do you have an inclination to reach out to him or just kind of wait and see? I know you said you don't think he'll apologize. And, and that's where staying up with storylines, staying up with the industry benefits you because bringing in the fact that they are they have a relationship off the track, maybe fans don't know that, maybe they do. Asking that question, uh, I got the sense that this was a Larson we hadn't seen before in terms of the willingness to share kind of, the mindset he was in, how angry he was. Uh, so I felt like I had the runway to ask more questions. And he didn't, he gave, he gave us good stuff in the first answer. Granted, there, there was still more to learn. And, and his second answer was pretty good. No, I mean, it is what it is. Like, yeah, we're friends. <laughs> yes, this makes things sh and awkward, but, um, you know, 
whatever. You know, he, he's always right. All, all, the, all the buddies know. Denny's always right. So I'm sure, I'm sure he was in the right there as well. But, uh, you know, it, just, it is what it is. I'm not going to let it you know, tarnish a friendship on track. But I am pissed. So, um, and, I, and I feel like I should be pissed. But um, I'm sure tune into Action is detrimental. He'll have, a, he'll have a long clip about it. But then you, he didn't, granted, the question was about off-track stuff. He never really talked about if he's going to race any differently. You know, and yeah. we're here we're here to cover the racing. So I felt like it was imperative that we understand what's going to go through his mind on track. And then, then I think, you know, that final answer from Larson was the most telling of anything he gave us. Do you race him differently on track then? I think at this point I have to, right? Like I... Like I said, I've, I've never had to apologize to him about anything, anything I've done on the racetrack. I can count four or five times where he's had to reach out to me to be like, oh man, sorry, I put you in a bad spot there or whatever. And so eventually, like he says, you know, you got to start racing people a certain way to get, get the respect back. So, um, I mean, he pulled the same move on Ross last year, which Ross probably deserved it, right? With all the stuff that, that he's done to Denny in his, in his uh, you know, career. Um, again, I haven't done, I haven't done that to Denny. So I don't, I don't think I deserve to be, you know, run into before I ever got to the wall. So, um, just, just, it is what it is. I, I'm going to go race the sprint car on Tuesday night. I'm going to forget about it here in a, in a few hours. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the best medicine for a, for a tough result. So look forward to getting the 57 sprint car on Tuesday at Grandview and, um, you move on to Richmond. A very frustrated Kyle Larson comes home in the 21st position. They're very perceptive of you to realize like he was ready to talk and he had yeah. things he wanted to say, but I think that final question kind of pulled the rest out of him and it continued at Richmond, by the way. I mean, he came in after qualifying Saturday and usually drivers do five minutes and bolt. He did 15 minutes and took every question and kind of elaborated a little bit more on racing Denny differently and on their history. And always had more history with him than anybody else. It was, Interesting. Uh, one more question on this. Have you had any feedback from Larson or Hendrick Camp? Or I know that obviously you've gotten a lot of positive feedback from media members like me and others, other yeah. reporters, but any feedback from uh, the rest of the industry or any that surprised you? Uh, I did get feedback from various industry folks, other teams and stuff. Hadn't had the opportunity, wasn't really in position this weekend to, to talk to anybody um, from Hendrick. And I kind of wanted to give Larson space. I think like, yeah. It's the week after, you know, that's still the, the topic du jour. Everybody's talking about it. I feel like he's not that he's worn out with questions, but I don't think I gain anything in my relationship with Larson, you know, as a reporter diving in and, and finding him and asking him. I do think maybe next week I'll find him. And, and I thanked Larson after the interview in the moment, but I do like to find drivers after and really drive home the point that I appreciate the time and tell him that his candidness, I think won over a lot of people uh, in terms of, of seeing a little personality from him. Um, I almost made it a point at Richmond not to interview Kyle. Like when we were having our meetings with MRN and talking about pre-race targets and obviously Denny and Kyle were targets. I specifically asked for Denny knowing I got a lot out of Larson and I don't know that I would want to get more and you never want to feel like you're wearing out a driver. And so I think plus, you know, having a different person interview him gives a, a different perspective, but ha haven't heard anything negative or positive um, from, from Hendrick. Uh, but I, I probably will find Larson next week and just uh, offer up another thanks and, and just say uh, everything has, 
<laughs> as as crazy as it's been, hopefully uh, it's been good for him in terms of the feedback he's gotten on how he's dealt with it. I'm sure it'll be fine. I mean, you handled it like a pro. Just curious, like, did Denny say anything? Uh, I interviewed Denny through, uh, a couple times throughout the weekend. He didn't say anything um, specific to me in my interview. I did see, I saw a clip of him in the media center at Pocono before he went to be interviewed, listening to his phone. Now, I don't know if he was listening and rewatching what we captured from Larson or what uh, the, the scrum captured, but the way it all played out, I, I, it worked out perfectly to get Larson's to, well, actually to get Denny's original thoughts, then for us to get Larson and then Denny to be able to hear that before his post win uh, press conference, because uh, I'll give kudos to, to all the editors throughout the industry that have kind of done this mashup. Um, that we saw from from Pocono of, of Denny's availability after the win, and then Larson's comments. Uh, I think you know the the montage and intermix of of their answers was brilliant and uh, really drove the storyline. So yeah, they gave us a ton to talk about. I, yeah, I think I think Denny's kind of tired of it though, because um, in my interview with my pre race interview at MRN or with MRN, this I had asked him about it, and he. He, he had some answer to the effect of, you know, he thinks that the media has made more out of it than it is, which I disagree, but that was his take. Well, as the host of Actions Detrimental, I hope he realizes he's complicit in all of that when yeah, he talks he about content. this stuff. I, yeah. yeah, exactly. What else are we going to talk about? Yeah, so we're going to get a thank you from Denny to because we probably in, increased his listenership for that week. <laughs> Well, to spin this ahead a little bit and wrap up by looking at Michigan, you know, we didn't see any of those moves, the Hamlin move at Pocono at Richmond. Uh, although Chris Buescher was warned about it by Scott Graves when Hamlin restarted next to him on the inside for that final green flag, Hamlin said it wasn't really available to him in that instance. But I'm sure that it's something we'll be hearing about at Michigan, you know, two-mile speedway, more similar to Pocono, certainly than Richmond was. What do you think we might see, Kim? Do you, so many drivers were talking about it this past weekend. And it seems like if you're not locked in the playoffs right now, this kind of move is fair game. Or even if you are locked in, it feels like it feels like there's just an accepted way of doing business now. If if you want to try to make a move on somebody in front of you, and if it, especially if it's the leader and they leave the door open where you can get underneath them, go into the turn and and shove them out of the groove, have at it. Yeah, the comments from other drivers were interesting, and I, there was a lot of agreement that you know you it, it's situational and you do have to kind of put other drivers in compromising situations and force their hand. But on the flip side, there were, there were quite a few drivers, including, you know, Kyle Busch, Martin Truex Jr. who were vocal about Denny's move almost being a little bit dirty and not to say that they wouldn't ever do it. Uh, and again, it would be circumstantial, but you probably wouldn't see that move from them unless it was a specific circumstance. Now, with four races left until the playoffs, I think the door is wide open for anything to happen. I don't necessarily think you're going to see any of that kind of racing throughout the race. Now, it's wide open with 20-ish laps to go, I think, uh, especially if you're if you're jockeying for, for the lead and you're a driver without a win. I think anything is possible. And I think the great thing is uh, the, the upcoming tracks we have before the playoffs lend themselves to a lot of on-track action, a lot of potential for 
tempers to flare for people to put other drivers in compromising situations. So I think it's a great time to be a NASCAR fan. There's a lot happening uh, in terms of these moves being made, especially at these big speedways. And Bubba Wallace is certainly right around that bubble. Doesn't have a win yet, but kind of maintained his composure in a way that we haven't always seen. I know he, he took a little bit of a shot at Denny at one point, but for the most part, very cool, very measured and calm. I'm sure he'll be looked at as a contender given how well Toyotas have run recently. What do you see from Bubba, both from Richmond and and looking forward to Michigan? Yeah, I think it's a continuing evolution of Bubba's maturity as a driver. Now, every driver gets upset about things, even if they're a longtime veteran and champion. So that's not to say we're never going to hear Bubba get fired up on the radio. But considering the circumstances, the fact that he had a dominant car, he led a lot of laps for the changer to have trouble on that right front. You know, I was expecting to hear a rant on the radio that I I didn't get, I didn't hear um, from Bubba. And so again, just more maturity, handling pressure a, a little bit better than we maybe have seen him in the past. And then I think looking forward to this weekend, he has a great opportunity here. He won his first Cup Series poll last year at Michigan, um, finished second to Harvick. The Toyotas have been fast. So I think we should look for Bubba to be a contender uh, as we head to Michigan. And I think they're with point situation is still fluid and he could still drop out of the playoff picture. But I think, you know, at plus, I think he's plus 54. That gives him a little bit more comfortability to just go out there and race. And that's what he needs to do. That's that very much falls into what Bubba needs is to just be able to go out there and race and only focus on that. And so I think that works in his favor. They had a good points game this past weekend in Richmond. Yeah, we'll see four races to go if he can join Chris Busher as the latest new winner this season. And Kim Kuhn will be a part of NASCAR NBC coverage this weekend from Michigan. So thanks again for joining us on the podcast, Kim. I always appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always like to be here. Our thanks again to Kim Kuhn for joining us on the NASCAR NBC podcast. Thanks to Motorsports Manager Emily Conboy for setting up this episode. You can watch the video version of the podcast on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube page and also find more NASCAR America Motormouths content and highlights from across the racing spectrum. That's the Motorsports on NBC YouTube page. The NASCAR NBC podcast is also available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's also now on Amazon Music as part of the NBC Sports Collection on Amazon Music. You can find all your favorite NBC Sports shows on Amazon Music. Just head to amazon.com slash NBC Sports. That's amazon.com slash NBC Sports. The NASCAR Cup and Xfinity Series will be at Michigan International Speedway this weekend. TV coverage of the Cup Series race will begin at 2 p.m. Eastern this Sunday on the USA Network. Dustin Long will be on site, so you can visit NBCSports.com slash NASCAR for all the details and schedules for how to watch the Cup and Xfinity Series, as well as all the news, columns, and analysis from Dustin and John Newby. I'll be in Nashville this weekend for the third annual IndyCar Music City Grand Prix. You can head to NBCSports.com slash motors for coverage there as well as coverage of the IMSA race at Road America on Sunday. That gets started at 11 a.m. Eastern on USA. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast.
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.